Today's guest is Chris Walker, joining us from Austin, Texas. Chris is the CEO and founder of Refine Labs, a company that builds demand and growth strategies for some of the fastest growing B2B SaaS companies on the planet. Welcome to the show, Chris. Josh, super happy to be here. Thanks for having me on the show. Uh, there's a lot of things I want to cover with you, but I think it's a good place to start just by going through your background a little bit. So for the people who don't know, how do you kind of end up where you are? What got you into, into marketing? Well, when you look at my career, I started my career in, in business and engineering and product management. So I spent the first four years there um, and then about 2015, 16 timeframe roll around. And where what I see that a lot of other people didn't see is how the world was moving, how B2B buyers were changing the results that we had are the moves that we'd already seen and the B2C consumer thing was now starting to bleed into B2B. And the recognition that marketing is is going to be outside of product the most important thing to drive business growth over the next decade, and so I, I started to see those trends early in the mid 2010s and bet my career on it. Moved downstream into uh, segment management, product uh, uh, product management, demand generation, and spent a lot of time at venture funded companies doing that, innovating, experimenting, thinking about new ways to measure things, because I think the way that B2B companies measure marketing and revenue generation overall is fundamentally flawed and broken and have spent almost almost a decade working on this problem specifically. And I think that I've developed tons of IP, new frameworks. I've worked with more than 200 B2B companies over the past four or five years and just have a huge, uh, very large breadth of experience. And it's so interesting of companies to come to me and they always think that their business is so unique and their challenges are so unique. And then you go and look and you're like, I've seen the exact same thing at the last, <laughs> at the last 10 companies that I've talked to that are around hundred million ARR, they're all facing the same challenge. And so, um, basically the recognition that as a business leader, as a business professional, that marketing was a huge opportunity, seeing that opportunity and then moving on it. I've always viewed myself, even when I've been a marketer at a company, I've always viewed myself as a business leader and executive. And uh, when you're a business leader and executive, you're looking for all available levers to, to business growth and competitive advantage. And I think that marketing just serves as a huge one. A lot, of pe a lot of companies don't get it. A lot of companies don't invest in it. A lot of companies don't do it the right way. A lot of companies don't believe in it, which leaves a huge opportunity for the few that really execute well. I really want to go into that last part because what you mentioned is you were able to kind of see the trend before everyone, um, you mentioned tracking as one example. So what do you think it was that allowed you to do spot the trend and then act on it? And what is it that's, that's keeping most companies now from doing what obviously makes sense, um, and just kind of sticking with the conventional, uh, wisdom. I worked at a B2B company for two years from 2016 to 2018. When I started, we generated $0 in pipeline from our website every quarter. And a year later, we were generating $3 million in pipeline per quarter. And the only thing that we added to the mix was making a video podcast that went on YouTube and um, our website and spending thirty dollars to $50,000 a month on Facebook ads to distribute video and image-based content that drove our strategic narrative, clinical data, social proof, other things like that. 
and watch the pipeline grow a ton and watch the attribution software stay that uh, SEO and direct traffic are what's driving the business when we didn't invest at all in any of those things. And it's just an attribution bias from those tools. And so that was the main recognition. 2016 comes around, this, the CEO saying, hey, we're spending so much money on Facebook ads and we're not, you know, I can't prove that it's driving the impact. And then instead of looking at it like we need a one-to-one -one correlation between Facebook ads and pipeline, what if we just look at it in the aggregate and say, we used to get $0 in pipeline and we invested this much money. Now we get $3 million a quarter in pipeline and we've added this much incremental money. This was a great ROI on the incremental spend. Oh, and wait, we also have 50 sales representatives that now are getting $3 million in extra pipe that they win at a high rate, that they have short sales cycles. It lowers our overall customer acquisition cost because we were over-invested in sales and we didn't invest in marketing to, to do the right things. Um, and so basically just had pressure put on me to find new ways to measure these programs that I knew were working, that customers told us were working, and then just built an entirely new way to look at the overall measurement. And that was in 2017. And I've continued to evolve on that model for the past six years. And so that's, that's how it started. Got it. Okay. So let's talk about measurement a little bit. Uh, where where have you kind of uh, arrived at now? I've seen you talk about this uh, hybrid attribution framework. Is that kind of what, what you think is, uh, is, is that what you kind of think is now the state of the art in terms of attribution? And could you go into a little bit of what you mean by that? I think we, there's two different things. There's key performance indicators and there's attribution. And for, sometimes it gets blended together, but it really should be looking at two different things. Key performance indicators. How much are we spending? What's the ROI? How much pipeline are we driving? What are the win rates? What are the sales cycles? Is the business overall performing relative to the investment that we're doing? Are things growing and moving up into the right and the right direction? Are they declining? What's happening? And then attribution. How do we understand how do we use data, qualitative and quantitative, to understand what are the key things that are actually making those impacts? And we go into attribution. Companies typically are myopic in their attribution. They use a tool like Visible or Dream Data or something like that, and they say, uh, because we can't, we because we can't measure it, it must not be working with this tool. And I reject that. Right. I reject the premise. I reject that idea. Um, have done multiple large-scale studies to demonstrate that those tools do are are limited, especially when it comes to dark, what we call dark social channels, communities, social networks, uh, content platforms, third-party events, communities. There's so many different places where those tools aren't where B2B buyers are getting information and making decisions that aren't being measured that way. I think that, so when you think about attribution, we actually need to think about what are all of the available data sources that we can have that we can feed in to make good decisions. Attributions, touchpoint-based digital attribution is one tool. Asking how did you hear about us or what we call self-reported attribution at the time of conversion is another tool. Doing large-scale market research surveys for buyers that aren't in market or for your target accounts could be another tool interviewing current customers or prospective customers one-to-one -one in primary market research, like actual customer interviews could be another one. Doing uh, like brand recognition or category recognition or awareness survey could be another one. There are so many different ways to measure things and understand where are people spending their time, how are they making decisions, what are making the impacts. And we, we just fundamentally need to think differently as business leaders about what attribution actually means, how to use it, and why we do it in the first place. Yeah, I've seen that uh, kind of inspired a lot by what you guys are doing and what the content you're putting out is including those kinds of qualitative 
qualitative data. And I think that's been really powerful, uh, really powerful to better, better understand what's actually working. Um, as someone who's, a, as you mentioned the, previously, that you, you saw yourself as kind of a business leader or, or someone who wants to focuses on generating actual revenue for the business. So when it comes to marketing, typically, do you want to be focused on actual conversions, actual um, leads or, or, or actual sales customers one? Or are you also paying attention to um, to brand, like you mentioned, brand awareness, brand recognition? What would recommend? What do you typically recommend companies focus on? How to strike the balance between getting actual conversion short term versus also taking into consideration the long term? I mean, obviously, the answer is both, right? Um, the question is, and the thing we need to think about is what actually drives "quote unquote" conversions? Is conversions the right thing to measure, or is it something different? So at what point do we measure? I, I believe that qualified pipeline that our sales team wins at 25% is a significantly better way to look at things. And then you can look at it at the account level, not at the person level is a significantly better way to look at things than how many leads you got or how many people filled out your form or how many people came to your website. Um, and so shifting the measurement down funnel, which all, all it does when you change from leads to qualified pipeline that wins it, that your sales team wins at 25% is it eliminates all the marketing garbage and bad behavior that companies do by changing the core KPI, by changing it to align to what your sales team needs to hit their, to hit their quota and win. All it does is it eliminates content syndication. It eliminates low intent Google search that you get to get to ebook downloads. It eliminates high volume performance marketing that you do on LinkedIn or Facebook ads. It eliminates the display ad garbage and YouTube garbage that people use with you know, performance max type of conversions that drives a bunch of spam into your forms and pumps up quote unquote MQLs. And so just by shifting the measurement and forcing the marketing team to do things that align with your sales team's outcomes, you eliminate all the stuff that B2B companies do today because the metric the current metric incentivizes all those behaviors and the new metric doesn't. Um, and so I, I think that shifting the, that goal would be a good move for companies because it forces the marketing team to get aligned with the sales team. So you would give the marketing team, let's say, qualified pipeline as their North Star metric, and they can track the other things, MQLs or or whatever performance metrics they want to track, but that wouldn't they wouldn't be able to allow to essentially optimize for those. Is, is that how you think about it? Qualified pipeline creation quarter over quarter that uses the win historical win rate metric as a quality control to ensure that you're still driving pipeline that sales wins at greater than 25%. The win, win rate metric is super critical because I go in and I analyze companies and they call pipeline stage zero opportunities that their sales team wins at 6%. It's not pipeline. It shouldn't be considered pipeline. Um, and then when you look at between their outbound channel and their web, the demo form on their website and their events, they all look at it as just pipeline, but their outbound wins at 6%, their events win at 12%, their demo form wins at 18%. And there's no weighted value or no weighted uh, correlation to the value of that pipeline. Um, and so what does that do? It, in it incentivizes people to go and get the get the pipeline they can get at the highest volume through outbound that wins at 6%. And it de-incentivizes the what stuff that you win at 18% because the, the quote unquote volume is lower, even though the win rate's better. Um, so like we have to be looking at these, this as revenue professionals, not as a marketer or a lead gen person versus a sales rep. Have you, what kind of changes have you seen in performance, um, when, when companies have implemented this, this single shift, like focusing, aligning sales and marketing towards a single metric, 
have you seen like big lifts in performance just from making this one shift in, in incentives and goals? The, the first thing that you do is dramatically improve ROI because you cut 20 to 80% of total marketing spend that's spent driving leads that don't close. Just, just to pump up metrics and hit an MQL target. I see it over and over. I saw it last Thursday. I'm working with a company. MQL is 137% to plan. Marketing stage zero ops created 111% to plan. Pipeline creation, 68% to plan. Sales team quota performance, 52% to plan. Marketing's hitting all of the leading metrics and sales is missing all the lagging metrics because the marketing activities and the marketing and investment is not aligned to actual revenue outcomes. It's driven to get MQLs. Um, and so number one, you're going to get dramatic, dramatically better ROI off the gate. Cause you're going to cut a bunch of spend that's not working. Um, the second thing that's going to happen is you're going to dramatically improve overall sales productivity by recognizing that when you go from having 5,000 leads that you only win a hundred of them and you cut out 4,800. And so you have 200 leads and now you win a hundred that you don't need 50 SDRs and a bunch of sales reps to follow up with all this junk. So you actually can, you companies have an overbloated sales team to facilitate and support this high volume MQL model. It was fine in 2021 when companies were getting a four year CAC payback because money was free. Not anymore, not anymore. So um, the excess sales headcount needed to support all of these low quality MQ, high volume MQLs um, is another place where companies could dramatically improve ROI, therefore improving sales productivity in that case. The wasted effort from sales professionals on garbage MQLs, especially at big companies that run these massive machines, are it's the it's the hidden cost. It's a hidden cost that a lot of people don't see that you probably would need way less sales headcount overall if you got rid of these things that are not productive. Um, and so you can see that. And then when done appropriately, you're going to see much better sales sales and marketing team alignment by aligning on goals that both teams need to be successful. Um, I think that's what everybody's striving for. The problem is that the change is hard. The change, making this change and shifting the metric from MQL or SQL to qualified pipeline that your sales team wins at greater than 25% basically f guarantees that you need to fundamentally change your overall marketing strategy. And most companies don't want to do it. So they'll keep pumping up MQLs. They'll keep hand-waving in board meetings. And at some point, companies are going to need to make the shift because these models simply will not scale. Yeah, that was going to be my question because the, the benefits you uh, laid out sound really great if you're a CEO or CFO, but I can imagine a lot of market teams don't want to hear that because they don't want to hear that they're wasting a lot of their marketing budget. They don't want to, a lot of their promotions or in uh, bonuses may be tied to some of these metrics. So how have you, having worked with so many companies, how have you, how, what have the companies have actually been able to successfully implement this kind of thinking? What have they done? What kind of, does it start from the CEO up and really having to kind of make some drastical changes inside the organization, inside the bonus structures, what is needed to kind of make this transition? An absolutely incredible CMO that can drive organizational change in a company that sees the future, that understands customers well, and can lead and manage the executive team through a transition from low performance to overall high performing and alignment, it really starts and stops with the CMO. And and because this change is not going to happen driven by a CEO alone, you need a marketing leader that deeply understands marketing to actually go and make it happen and lead a team. And when you look at the companies that have pulled it off that I've worked with that are some of the best, the really it comes down to whether or not the CMO was really strong and good and believed in the overall overall mission and product and built the company, built the team, 
built the KPIs, built the process, managed the budget, all focused on these outcomes. Um, I think that's the number one indicator, if I'm being honest. And, and do you think that the CMOs needs uh, some kind of like air cover from the board where, as you mentioned earlier, like we're not going to be able to attribute everything, everything back to any single activity, right? So do you kind of need an, a, a management team or a board that accepts some level of ambiguity when it comes to measuring, provided that over a quarter, over a six month period, everything is going to, uh, the aggregate numbers are going to look good. Do you uh, kind of need that or uh, no? I personally don't believe that any board should give a fuck about uh, direct attribution. The board should care, is the business hitting their overall goals? And when the business is hitting their overall goals, nobody's asking about attribution, not at the board level, not at the executive level, not at the team level. Um, and so like, what actually needs to happen is we need to reset expectations. We need to realign the goals that matter, and we need to focus on... It's interesting. Right now, Like everyone's talking about efficiency and ROI. I've been talking about this for six years. I've been taught when times were good, I was talking about efficiency and ROI while some of our customers wasted a million dollars a month on Google search. And I told them not to, and they wouldn't stop. Um, and then, you know, a little while later, they didn't build the muscles of the things that were needed to drive overall results. One company used to spend 600 K a month on Google ads and they cut it to hundred K a month and saw no negative impact on pipeline. They were literally just blowing $6 million a year for nothing. And like, those are the things that you should be taking back to the board and saying, Hey, we just recouped $6 million. We can go and put a million on product. We can go invest in a uh, half a million on an offsite. We're going to go take this extra million dollars. We're going to invest it in these core marketing programs. And we're going to give $3 million back to the P and L so we can inc uh, extend our runway or increase EBITDA. That's what a, that's what a yeah. strong, that's what a strong CMO should do. But a lot of people didn't during that, that time period. Now they're being forced to right now. Certainly. Um, and now, because like you said, it's a, it's a way different environment um, in, in terms of the economy. Do you see companies swinging too far in the other direction? Is there a mistake happening there where companies are just almost in a panic, shutting off everything um, prematurely or recklessly? Um, I, I see the, the swing of the pendulum being too focused on dollar in, dollar out ROI, all the same, and just persists all the same problems that have been happening all the time. When you force direct attribution, what do you do? You force your marketing team to do all the things that I talked about that drive high volumes of leads that don't convert. Low intent Google SEM, content syndication, high performance paid social lead gen are probably the three main expenditures. Um, and so that's one of the things that happens. And then when mar like marketing budgets that are getting cut slashed by 60% are typically not having a negative impact on overall results because the spend was not being used effectively. Um, one thing that I'm disappointed and concerned by is that all experimentation budget is going away in pursuit of this like one-to-one -one direct ROI. And so you, marketing teams are not experimenting with new channels. They're not investing in the podcast. They're not trying to get their LinkedIn, LinkedIn organic evangelism program to work. They're not going out and testing, you know, influencer marketing or Reddit or all these other emerging places that could drive business growth over the next two to three years. But only if you do them. I started doing my LinkedIn in 2019 and we still haven't hit in full stride and impact four years later. And it, the, it continues to build. And the people that are starting their LinkedIn program right now lost out on the four years that I've been experiencing in business growth. 
And so what's happening right now is those all the, the things that people could have done this year will then get delayed to 2026, and they miss those three years of window of opportunity where it could drive significant business growth. And so the experimentation budgets going down, I think, are the things that it, it decreases morale, it low, lowers overall business innovation, therefore competitive advantage. I think we're going to see a lot of negative impacts from overcutting marketing budgets and constraining people to direct attribution. Again, these the economic situation or the the global situation is emphasizing a lot of things that I've been talking about more than historically, but all these principles I've been talking about for five years. Um, and so it's interesting. I've, I've said it before. I said it in 2021. Until companies feel pressure and feel massive pain, they will not make changes. And so now that pressure and that pain is happening and they're going to get forced to rethink their overall they're getting forced to rethink their overall business strategy. Inside of that, they're really going to have to rethink their marketing strategy as it is a primary growth lever in 2023 and beyond. Got it. Uh, you, you mentioned that and examples for you guys have been LinkedIn podcasting. You got there early and as a result, you all enjoyed a lot of the benefits of, of that. Is there anything right now on the horizon on your radar as kind of potential emerging opportunities where there's a couple year period where you could enjoy some of that Um less competitive space? You know, I'm, I'm happy to talk about some of the things that I'm seeing in the future, but I want to sort of hedge and caveat with this is that there's no sense in doing any of the things that I'm about to say if you can't effectively drive results from LinkedIn, a podcast, a weekly virtual event, video, you know, a video podcast content on YouTube or a website. There's, there's a huge difference between the what I think about as table stakes fundamentals, the things that I listed there, and then experiments. Um, and so if you, you can assess yourself. And so be, if you, before I think about talking about Reddit, uh, Quora, we're actually seeing really interesting results from Quora influencer marketing. We've been getting more into and trying, I think those are three really interesting sort of pockets of opportunity, just like in B2C, like a lot of companies won't do influencer marketing right now because it's very manual. It's very hand to hand. Um, just like it was in B2C in 2014 when I was doing it to sell e-commerce products where I learned about how impactful influencer marketing and user-generated content was in B2C and still believe in it deeply in B2B. B2B companies don't do it because it's very manual, because it's hard to measure, and because they don't think about marketing in the right way. It's, it's very simple. Um, I, th I see those as opportunities. Uh, additionally, I think that OTT or like streaming video ads could be really interesting for B2B companies, especially a company like with a wide horizontal product, um, I think could be a really interesting opportunity. And also uh, podcast advertising is getting better with in terms of like programmatic distribution, making it easier for people to use. So um, those are the places where if you have a high performing marketing team, those are the places where I'd start to be deploying uh, more dollars. How do you think about, you mentioned a couple of opportunities there. Um, in terms of both organic and paid, how do you think about creative versus just distribution? When you, let's say you're auditing a new potential client, um, is that kind of one of the first thing you really focus on? Is how, how well are they communicating their USP? How well are, how well are they positioned? Or yeah, how, how do you think about the importance of that? I mean, there, there are two entirely independent things. Content, what am I saying? And then distribution, how am I getting that message to the right people in a way that it actually gets consumed? So there are two very different things. A lot of companies, 
that I interact with actually have a pretty decent overall engine to create content. They create great customer stories. They have proprietary data from their product that they can then use for research reports or ABM or something like that. They create uh, blogs that may be high value and may be low value depending on who's doing it, but they have a decent content engine. The problem is that they never focus on distribution, so nobody that they care about ever sees it or consumes it. And then when you actually look at distribution, then you have to think there's two parts of it. How do I get somebody to actually, how do I target the right person? And then how do I know whether it was actually consumed or not, right? B2B companies love to run programmatic display ads out of six sensor demand base that never ever get consumed. Almost never get consumed. Um, but they'll spend $10,000 a month on it because they can say, oh, we delivered these ads to these accounts. It was $10,000. And then we, but then you start to look at like how, like on LinkedIn ads, for instance, right? There's good buys on LinkedIn ads and there's not good buys, right? You turn on LinkedIn audience network and you have it go run and LinkedIn will then go and take your banner ad and put it on 200 different websites that people don't, don't use. Like, or you could target in the feed at exact companies with the right job titles and you can most likely get consumed if the creative is good. Um, and so... I think you need to be looking at these as both things and you have to have the overall message down. So I'll give you an example from our company, right? So we do this video podcast, the videos created, and then for distribution, all we, all we're doing is cutting, reformatting, changing to fit it natively into the channel. Some things like TikTok, I actually build native content because I find that it works better. And I find that the, like just taking a cut from a video podcast versus like building a native green screen thing, something native, you can actually get better results building natively. But for the most part, you can just take the exact same content reformat for distribution and then send it out across five or six different channels. Um, but we're at five or six channels now, but step one was LinkedIn. Step two was actually the podcast. Step three was getting it on YouTube. Step four was TikTok, And we've been able to build into five or six channels versus doing them all at once. And that's over a two or three year period of time. Um, and so I just companies don't think long term B2B companies specifically growth stage companies do not think long term enough to think about how the LinkedIn content that their executives producing now could evolve over the next three years to a full functioning marketing machine that gives them a super competitive advantage. They just don't think long term enough. Um, and it's a it's a real shame because it's where you get the biggest impact. It's where you it's where you build a competitive advantage. Do you have a framework for how you think about channels and, and, and experiments? Let's say a company is, you know, not sure if they should go into start focusing on LinkedIn as opposed to doing some kind of um, webinars. How, how do you recommend typically companies go about deciding what to do and when and, and also how much to spend or how long, how much time or money to spend before deciding, OK, this is not going to be our this is not going to be part of our playbook. Do you have a framework for how to think about these things? I mean, step one is assess the current state, assess everything that you're doing, where the money's being deployed, and then put together a measurement framework to understand which things are working and which ones aren't, which probably isn't the framework that's being used today. It probably needs to be enhanced and, and it changed. Then you, then you start to look, we, I, have a concept that we call the revenue R&D pipeline, otherwise known as like a stacking growth methodology is what I used to call it overall, where it's basically a five phase development system, just like what your product development team uses. 
So you assess all of the current programs that are in motion, and then you put them into objective buckets from stage, stage one to stage five based on objective results and impact. And then you have a stacked up of here are the things that we're doing, and here's where they belong inside of the phases. Then you go and get insights from customers, which then informs which things that you should be cutting, which things that you should be spending more money on, which things, which new experiments you should be trying. And then you methodically move experiments through the process. Um, and when you think about time and investment, investment should be driven by ROI. It's pretty simple. And time, I think, is a really interesting sort of mindset because when you have a fully functioning marketing system like my business has, that when you run an experiment on TikTok, you don't have a time constraint because all the shit that you have is working. So then TikTok becomes the upside. It becomes the cherry on top. I'm not putting in our financial plan about how much pipeline it's going to drive, which allows us to do the right things, which allows us to take four to six months to really figure it out which allows us to think long-term and build something long-term. And then all of a sudden over time it hits, you figure out this is the content, this is the medium, this is how it works. Then you go and move it and add it into the fully functioning system. Now you got five channels or programs running. Then you go back to the beginning and think about what's next. Maybe it's Quora, maybe it's Reddit. Is it organic or paid? Let's start building on that. And then again, you can take your time. You can think long term. take your time. Doesn't mean move slow or be complacent. It means, do the right things and don't cut programs for no reason after 30 days because they're not showing results or leads. And so I, you got to be able to set yourself up as a marketing leader to be successful by understanding how everything is performing right now. And, and there's no sense in running ex experiments when most of the shit that you're doing right now is wasting money. You should spend your time fixing the things that you're already doing rather than running net new experiments. It's so crazy. People come in and talk to me about working together. And they're like, yeah, um, right now we spend a hundred thousand dollars a month on Google. We spend $75,000 a month on LinkedIn. We spend $50,000 a month on content syndication, but we're talking and like, and I say, well, what's working and what's not. And they're like, well, all of our paid programs are, we think are underperforming, but we want to work with refine labs to launch our podcast. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Why don't we go and try and fix the $250,000 a month that's being wasted on these programs before we start trying to build our podcast? And I think like, so it feels logical and simple, but a lot of companies don't look at it that way. They say, these are the programs they're running, regardless of the results, we're going to keep running them that way. And let's just think about more, more new stuff rather than forcing each program to drive significant ROI or reallocate the dollars. I think you mentioned something really interesting there about setting yourself up for success the way you have with TikTok, where you can take the time not to be slow, but to keep trying until you get it right. And I feel like that's a lot, especially coming from a Finnish context, Finnish companies typically, infamously maybe, infamously, um, spend very little on advertising. Um, how, how, do you have any frameworks compared to like Sweden, compared to the US, certainly, you guys are very good at branding, very good at promoting um, do you have a kind of a framework for how you think about the marketing investment? Obviously, like you said, it has to be tied to ROI, but any kind of general thoughts on, on how to think about that? Yeah, first you have to look at it in the context of the overall business, right? If you have 50% gross margins, you're going to spend less on overall customer acquisition than if you have 85-90% gross margins. If your customer lifetimes are eight months, you're going to spend less on customer acquisition than if your average customer lifetime is three years. 
And so the business overall dynamics are going to dictate what is my and your funding or investment strategy are going to dictate what is my allowable or acceptable overall customer acquisition cost or better framed as customer acquisition cost payback period. And then once you have those bounds set, then that starts to drive where are the places that we're going to deploy dollars. I think it's also very interesting when you think about marketing as a way to blend down the overall cost of acquisition overall, as opposed to how many leads did marketing source and how much pipeline did they create? Because most companies that I interact with and a lot of companies that I interact with, they have 50, 100, 1,000 sales reps that are all performing low and they spend so much money on that sales engine and the sales engine operates inefficiently because the company's not creating demand. So the sales team's spending time trying to sell the people who don't want to buy. And then by just adding, you know, you spend $50 million a year on your sales team and you add $1 million in marketing and you do that marketing well and you drive a certain amount of revenue, it actually lowers the overall customer acquisition cost because the the return on the million is significant. The additional 1 million is significantly better than the existing 50 million being spent on sales. And so uh, I think it's interesting to think about the uh, marketing as a way to blend down overall business cost of acquisition rather than just be a lead gen hamster wheel machine. Do you think that, because you mentioned in, in the beginning of our conversation, the fact that, you know, having worked with so many companies, everyone comes to you thinking that their situation is unique, their problems are unique. And you've seen it all before. Do you think that is kind of what allows you to have that confidence that in, in when it comes to making investments, when it comes to running these programs, it's just that you've seen the process, you know how it works and, and not having that confidence, not having that kind of broad perspective is what's keeping a lot of companies in that place of just, yeah, like you said, they're running on, on Google. Maybe they're, they feel like it's underperforming, but still it's, you know, the devil that you know. So they'd rather keep doing that than try something new. Do you think that's kind of like one thing that's that's allows you to to push for new things um, more more boldly than than a lot of companies. I think it's just pattern recognition, and I think uh, so. Pattern recognition allows me to see over and over the same thing across a lot of different companies, different industries, different buyer types, different company stages. While somebody that's in one company doesn't see that pattern recognition, so they think that their situation is unique. Um, another thing is that I think about metrics and KPIs and attribution entirely different than most people think about them, which allows me to see clearly the programs that are underperforming when other people wouldn't see them because the metrics they look at are different. Um, it's so crazy. This entire marketing system of like get MQLs, nurture them, create pipeline acceleration programs to push them through, have SDRs cold call everyone, put them into re-nurture programs the demand waterfall type of thing where if we get 10,000 leads, then maybe we'll get 200 close one customers at the bottom as people flow through this funnel, how we think about measurement inside of that and how we measure it and all this different stuff. That entire marketing system is built around the technology that existed from marketing automation and in, in, which was created in, and like, which was created in 2006 or the mid two thousands. And we still operate in the, this type of system, even though it's been 15, 20 years later and the way buyers buy is so much different. And so just challenging that and thinking about metrics differently. And when you think about metrics differently, it allows you to see clearly this stuff isn't working, which gives you confidence to say, let's stop spending money on stuff that's not working. Let's go do something else. Yeah. I mean, it seems it's, it's 
it seems very obvious. Um, I think just a lot of people struggle with that. It's kind of the, the same reason that no Another one got fired thing, for using IBM. Uh, 100, I was it's just, just going to go there. I think it's so true. I think oftentimes it's like at a variety of stages, but people, people are doing, running risk mitigation in their careers. And so like, totally. what's, the, what's the easiest way to get fired? To make a dr- drastic change that's best for the business, but doesn't materialize for a certain period of time. I know because I've done it before. And I've done it before successfully in a company that could have fired me and chose not to. And I drove good results for them. And then I did it again at a company that chose to ask me to resign. And so when you're trying to make significant organizational change that's different than what companies do, oftentimes you're going to have to put yourself in a position that would risk you getting fired. And a lot of people don't want to do that. And so, and I, I empathize with that and I understand, um, but you're never going to make massive organizational change that drives legendary business growth by not challenging the way we do things right now and recommending non-obvious innovative solutions. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. Um, I could ask you a question for hours, but I want to be mindful of your time. So I'll just wrap up with one final question. Um, obviously, AI is a huge topic. Last I checked on LinkedIn, you were, as it pertains to, to marketing, you were not, not very impressed. Um, have you changed your mind and are you guys at Refine Labs or any of your clients, are you using AI in novel, innovative ways? Um, how, how do you think about that? Uh, it's not that I'm not impressed. The technology is incredibly impressive. I am not impressed by the main use cases for how it's trying to be used today. And I think that over time we'll mature and, and use them in different buckets. The, the main way that it's being used today is to uh, pump out low quality, obvious type of content that just scours the internet for existing information and then repackages it onto your blog, which means that you're putting out commodity information on your blog in hopes that it ranks in SEO. I just don't think it's a, I don't think it's needed. I don't, I think that buyers don't need that stuff. Um, and I think it creates a huge opportunity um, because it raises the, the bar of content to a higher level. And the, basically the level is you need to be producing insights with proprietary data that demonstrate new things that people don't already know about. And if, you're, if your content is not putting it out at that level, then you, you produce commodity content. And what's that gonna do? It's gonna change who creates the content. It's gonna change what formats the content gets created. It's gonna change how it gets distributed. No, the, gone are the days that you outsource your SEO content to some place in Southeast Asia for a hundred dollars a blog and put out a hundred blogs a month and think that you're doing a good job. That shit's over. Um, and so that's one thing. I think the biggest promise to, uh, AI in the short term is actually the operational efficiencies that it creates from a lot of manual work right now, not the ideas. The ideas are the most important part, your, your perspective, the data that you're able to collect, how you look at that data, how you tell a story around it, how you view it into your own point of view on what it means for the market. You can't outsource that shit and you shouldn't be running that through AI today. What you could do is once you have all that stuff in a video format, that being able to take that and automatically operationalize it. So it cuts the videos, it formats them for TikTok, it formats them for uh, LinkedIn square, uh, paid media spots. It writes a, it writes a summary or it automatically transcribes it. It posts it onto your website with the video attached, which all humans are doing right now and managing it through like a monday.com or an Asana process. 
and all that stuff could be automated. And, you know, I think that the operational parts of AI, I think are really interesting. I also hope this is a hope, not a prediction. Um, because I, while I hope it happens, I'm not that confident it will, is that um, AI should be incredibly strong at overall sentiment analysis, which should hopefully raise the um, acceptance and the trust that companies have in qualitative insights. It's my hope by being able to look at things automatically and create sentiment around it versus having someone manually sort through 200 columns in a spreadsheet to try and come up with what the sentiment is, or worse, trying to take all this, the data that you have from 200 responses and trying to tally it into a quantitative you know, system when that's not the point of qualitative data. Um, and so I hope that we're able to use AI to increase the value and increase the, um, the usefulness of qualitative data inside of companies that I think is missed for the most part right now. That's actually really interesting. I haven't heard anyone really highlight that point of, of being able to better utilize qualitative data when it comes to marketing through AI. And I also want to highlight one thing you said, qualitative insights, uh, or sorry, like actual unique insights and proprietary data that needs to be the standard for B2B content. Otherwise, like you said, you're producing commodity and in this day, day and age, you know, commodity just not, you're not going to get the eyeballs. You're not going to get the, whatever it is that you're trying to, to get with that. So, um, thank you so much, Chris, for coming on. I really enjoyed it. I would assume that LinkedIn is the best place for people to follow you and uh, keep up to date with all the content you're sharing. Yeah. Feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn, Chris Walker, one, seven, one, or, and, or subscribe to the revenue vitals podcast available on Apple, Spotify, and all other podcast platforms. Perfect. All right. Thank you so much. Thanks. Thanks.